Chapter Twelve of The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter Twelve. Thursday afternoon, I was sitting in the exchange, feeling as if the bottom had fallen out of the world. I hadn't given up yet. I am not the giving up kind, but I couldn't think of anything else to do. I tossed on my bed all night thinking. I dressed, thinking. I tried to eat, thinking. I put in the plugs and made the connections, thinking. And nothing would come. Two days more. Two days more. Two days more. Those three words kept going through my head as if they were strung on an endless chain. And then, isn't it always that way in life? Just when you're ready to throw up the sponge and say you're beaten, bang! it comes. It came in the shape of a New York call for Azalea. Like a dream, for I was pretty nearly all in, I could hear the operator's voice. That you, Longwood? Give me Azalea 383. And then me answering, All right, Azalea 383. Wait a minute. I plugged in and heard that queer grating sound as if the wires were rubbing against each other. Hello? New York? All right for Azalea 383. And then a woman's voice, clear and small. Here's your party. Just a minute. There you are. Azalea 383. And a man's voice far away, as if it might be on Mars. Hello. Is that Azalea 383? Yep. The Azalea Garage. That was close and plain. This is Mr. Cokesbury's butler. Believe me, I came to life. Cokesbury, Cokesbury of Cokesbury's Lodge, get it? Yep. I've got a message for Miner, the manager. Fire away, I'm Miner. He wants to know if you found a raincoat in that auto he had from you last time he was down. Raincoat, waterproof, do you hear? Yes, sir, I hear perfect. We've got it, and I'd have sent it back, but I thought he'd be down again any time, and it was just as well to keep it here. That's all right. The coat doesn't matter, but he's lost a key that does. Think maybe he left it in the pocket. Have you found any key? I haven't looked. Hold the wire while I see. There was a pause while I prayed no one would come in or call up. My prayer was answered. There was nothing to interrupt when I heard the garage man's voice again. The key's there. Good work. Mr. Cokesbury's had the house here upside down looking for it. He wants you to do it up careful and give it to Sands, the Pullman conductor, on the 6.20 tonight. I'll come across and get it off him at Jersey City. All right. Will I send the raincoat along, too? No, he don't want that. He's going to Europe Saturday, and I guess he's calculating to buy a new one. Thanks for your trouble. Goodbye. Goodbye. I dropped the cam, sat tight, and thought. People kept coming in and out, and calls came flashing along the wires, and I worked swift and steady like an operator that's got no thought but for what's before her. But my mind was working like a steam engine underneath. How could I get him? How could I get him? It was as if I had two brains, one on the top that went mechanical like a watch, and one below that was doing the real business. Before the afternoon was over, I decided on a line of action. 
I called up Katie Riley and asked her if she'd relieve me at five-thirty instead of six, that I'd an invitation to go down to a party at Jersey City, and I was keen to get there early. She agreed, and at six I was on the platform of the station waiting for the New York train. I took a seat in the common coach, and at Azalea watched from the window and saw a man on the platform give Sands a packet. I knew Sands well, and when he passed back through my car, nodded to him, and he stopped and stood in the aisle talking. It wasn't long before I said, careless, I hear Cokesbury Lodge is for rent. I ain't heard it, said Sands, but I ain't surprised. Now he's sent his family away, he don't want a house that size on his hands. Has he been down lately? No, not for, let me see, it's several weeks. Yes, the last time was the Sunday before Sylvia Heskis' murder. I knew all that, but it doesn't do to jump at what you're after too quick. Lucky for him he could prove his car was on the blink that time, I said, looking languid out of the window. Sure, he and Reddy were the only ones of her fellers within striking distance, but no one ever suspicioned Cokesbury. He ain't the murderin' kind, too jolly and easy. I hear he's going to Europe. Is he now? Where'd you hear that? From Miner, the man that runs the Azalea garage. He come down to the station just now and gave me a package, something Cokesbury left in the motor the last time he was down. I'm to hand it over to a servant at Jersey City. Is it love letters that he don't want to leave behind? No, I guess he's careful of them. Here it is. He drew out of his breast pocket an envelope with Cokesbury's name and address written on it and held it out to me. That ain't no love letter. I pinched it. It's a key. It may open the desk where the love letters are kept. I guess he's too fly to keep any dangerous papers like that around. Yes, I says. They might set the house on fire. Well, ain't you the sassy kid? says he, and then the train slowing up for a station, he walked on up the aisle. In the Jersey City depot I went like a streak for the telephone exchange. My one chance was to catch him at dinner, and I gave the operator the number of his house. When she pointed to the booth I was trembling like a leaf. The voice that answered me was a woman's. Irish, the cook's, I guess. She began right off. Yes, this is Mr. Cokesbury's residence, but you can't see him. Wait! I almost screamed, scared that she was going to disconnect. This is important. It's about a key I've just found. If Mr. Cokesbury's there, tell him a lady wants to see him about a key she picked up a few minutes ago on the New Jersey train. All right, hold the wire. I knew he'd come. My heart was beating, so I had to hold it hard with my free hand, and I had to bite my lips to make them limber. But honest to God, when I heard him, clear and distinct right in my ear, I thought I was going to faint, for at last I'd got the voice. "'What's this about finding a key?' he said, gruff and sharp. "'Am I speaking to Mr. Cokesbury?' "'You are. Who is it?' "'No one you know, sir.' I've just come in from Philadelphia, and on the Pullman step I found a package which seems to have a key in it. I noticed that it was addressed to you, and I looked you up in the telephone book, and am phoning now from Jersey City. He was very cordial then. 
His voice was the same deep, pleasant one he'd used to Sylvia. "'That's very kind of you and very thoughtful. I can't thank you enough. The package was given to the Pullman conductor, and he's evidently dropped it.' "'Then shall I give it to the Pullman conductor now?' "'If you'll be so kind. My servant's gone over there to get it. Just hand it to the conductor, a tall, thin man whose name is Sands.' "'I'll do it right off. Ain't it lucky I found it?' "'Very. I'm deeply grateful. It would have put me to the greatest inconvenience if it had been lost. I'd like to know to whom I'm indebted.' "'Oh, that don't need to bother you. I'm just a passenger traveling down on the train. Awful glad I could be of any service. Good-bye.' I waited a minute till I got my heart quieted down, then took a call for Babbitt's paper. Luck was with me all round that night, for he was there. I couldn't tell him everything. I was afraid. But I told him enough to show him I'd landed Cokesbury, and he answered to come across to town and he'd meet me at the ferry. I caught a boat as it pulled out of the slip, and at the other side he was waiting for me. "'Come on,' he said, putting his hand through my arm and walking quick for the street. "'I got a taxi here. We'll charge it up to the defense.' I got in, supposing he was going to take me somewhere to dinner, but he wasn't. When I heard where we were bound, I was sort of scared. It was to Wilbur Whitney's house, Jack Reddy's lawyer. "'He's expecting us,' Babbitts explained. I called him up right after I'd heard from you. You see, kiddo, we don't want to lose a minute, for we can't stop Cokesbury's going unless we've got something to stop him for.' Mr. Whitney's house was a big grand mansion just off Fifth Avenue. A butler let us in, and without waiting to hear who we were, showed us into a room with lights and bunches along the walls, small spindly gold chairs and sofas, and a floor that shone like glass between elegant soft rugs. There was some class to it, and Babbitts and I looked like a pair of tramps sitting side by side on two of the gold chairs. I was nervous, but Babbitts kept me up, telling me Mr. Whitney was a delightful gentleman and was going to jump for all I had to say. Then we heard steps coming down the stairs, two people, and I swallowed hard, being dry in the mouth, what with fright and having had no supper. Mr. Whitney was the real thing. He was a big man with a square jaw and eyes deep under thick eyebrows. He spoke so easy and friendly you forgot how awful sharp and keen those eyes were and how they watched you all the time you were talking. A young man came with him, a real classy chap, that he introduced to me as his son George. They couldn't have acted more cordial to me and Babbitts if we'd been the king and queen of Spain. When they sat down and asked me to tell them what I knew, I loosened up quite natural and told the whole story. The young man sat sideways on the gold sofa, smoking a cigarette and looking into the air with his eyes narrowed up as if he was spying at something a long ways off. Mr. Whitney was sort of slouched down in an easy chair with his hands, white as a woman's, hanging over the arms. Now and then he'd ask me a question, always begging my pardon for interrupting, and though they were so calm and quiet I could feel, as if it was in the air, that they were concentrated close on every word I said. When I got through, Mr. Whitney said, very cheerful, as if I'd been telling some yarn in a story-book, "'That's very interesting, Miss Morgenthau, and very well told. Quite a narrative gift, eh, George?' And he looked at his son. First class story,' 
said George, and as careless as you please flicked off his cigarette ashes onto the rug. Mr. Whitney leaned forward, clasping his big white hands between his knees and looking into my face, half smiling but with something terrible keen behind the smile. "'How can you be so sure of the voice, Miss Morganthau? I don't know whether on the phone I could recognize the voice of my own son here.' "'You get that way in my work,' I answered. "'Your ear gets trained for voices.' "'You are absolutely certain,' said young Mr. Whitney, "'that in that message you overheard the man spoke of coming to the meeting-place in his auto?' "'Yes, sir, I'm certain he said that.' He turned and looked at his father. "'And investigations have shown he had no auto, he telephoned to no other garage for one, he kept no horses, and to get there on his own feet would have had to walk through bad country roads a distance of twenty-five miles.' um answered old mr whitney as if he wasn't interested and then he said to me in this message you heard to-day no suggestion was given of what that key was the key of no sir the man just said it was important that mr cokesbury had the house upside down looking for it um said mr whitney again i rather fancy miss morganthau that you've done us a double service in hunting for a voice you've stumbled on a key Young Mr. Whitney laughed. "'It's probably the key of his front door.' "'Perhaps,' said his father, and looked down on the carpet as if he was thinking. Then Babbitt spoke up. "'Don't criminals, no matter how careful they are, often overlook some small clue that maybe is the very thing that gives them away?' "'Often,' said Mr. Whitney. "'In most crimes there's a curious lack of attention to detail.' The large matters are well conceived and skillfully carried out, and then some minor point is neglected, sometimes forgotten, sometimes not realized for its proper value. He got up and shook himself like a big bear, and we all rose to our feet. I was feeling pretty fine, not only the relief of having delivered the goods, but proud of myself for getting through the interview so well. Mr. Whitney added to it by saying, "'You're a pretty smart girl, Miss Morganthau. "'You don't know, and I don't know yet, "'the full value of the work you've done for me and my client. "'But whatever the outcome may be, "'you've shown an energy and a keenness of mind "'that is as surprising as it is unusual.' "'I just swelled up with importance and didn't know what to say. "'Behind Mr. Whitney I could see Babbitt's face all beaming and grinning, "'and I was so glad he was there to hear. "'And then—' Just when I was at the top notch of my pride, Mr. George Whitney, who'd been silent for a while, said suddenly, "'If you don't mind me asking, Miss Morganthau, I'd like to know what lucky chance made you listen in to that conversation between Miss Hesketh and the unknown man.' "'Believe me, I came down to earth with a thud. How could I tell them? Say I listened to everything in the hope of hearing Jack Reddy talking to Sylvia?' I looked down on the floor, feeling my cheeks getting as red as fire. "'Go ahead,' said Babbitt. "'Don't be afraid to say anything.' "'We're as close here as the confessional,' said old Mr. Whitney, smiling at me like a father. I had to say something, and took what seemed to me the most natural. I'd heard Miss Hesketh was a great one for jollying up the men, and I wanted to hear how she did it. And they all— and that means Babbitt's too, 
just burst out and roared. "'Good for you, Miss Morganthau,' said Mr. Whitney, and he put his hand on my shoulder and gave it a shake. "'Only I'll bet a hat you didn't need any teaching.' He turned to his son and said something about the car being there and then back to me. "'Now for a few days, Miss Morganthau, I'll expect you to be off-duty in a place accessible by telephone.' off duty i exclaimed how can i do that he smiled in his easy way and said we'll attend to that don't you worry about it go home and stay there till you get a call from me if anyone asks what's the matter say you're ill and laid off for a few days don't bother about reporting at the office that'll be arranged and i need hardly tell you not to speak a word of what you've discovered or of this interview here to-night she won't said babbitts i'll go bail for that he gave mr george whitney mrs galloway's telephone number and then we shook hands all around i was just wondering what was the quickest way to the ferry when mr whitney said the motor's waiting for you and i'm sure mr babbitts will escort you to the boat good night and remember hold yourself ready for a call to come to my office the car waiting outside was mr whitney's own Gee, it was swell! A foot warmer and a fur rug and a clock and a bottle of salts for me to sniff at. I didn't tell Babbitts I'd no dinner, for I was ashamed to have the chauffeur stop at the kind of joints we patronize, and so I bore the ache in my insides and tried to believe the foot warmer and the salts made up for it. End of chapter 12